Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we've heard from the Freedom Convoy organizers, Ottawa residents, law enforcement, and numerous politicians. But today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau set to testify before the Emergencies Act inquiry. What can we expect? Well, we'll get into that for you. Canada and its Western allies are reversing course and attempting to redefine what differentiates and unites Western economies and how we can all benefit from that. And we remember Maple Leaf great Boya Salmon, who passed away. Mike Stubbs, host of London Live, and of course, the voice of the London Knights will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, anticipation is palpable in Ottawa. This, this is the day that the uh, inquiry, of course, into the Emergencies Act is supposed to wrap up. And the star witness, I suppose, is uh, is going to testify, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, is going to uh, take the stand and answer some questions. We're told, anyway, he will be there. Uh, as to what's going to happen, well, we'll uh, have to watch and find out. A uh, lot of anticipation about this, a lot of speculation about this. Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, tells us uh, what he expects Trudeau to be pressed on. We heard yesterday from Trudeau's chief of staff, Katie Telford. She was on the stand and she said at the end of the day, this was the prime minister's decision. So what inputs did he have? Whose advice was he taking? We'll probably hear about phone calls that he had with some world leaders, including U.S. President Joe Biden. Biden and Trudeau talked and about the, the blockades of the borders and the potential harm they, they were covering. That's what the commission council will do. But don't forget, there's lots of parties represented at this, uh, at this particular proceeding, including there's some lawyers from the convoy program protesters themselves. And so these protesters will get 10 or 15 minutes to cross-examine the prime minister, lawyers for police services, their lawyers from the governments of Alberta, the governments of Saskatchewan, and uh, both those provinces disagreed with the idea of invoking the Emergencies Act. So it could be a pretty hot day uh, for the prime minister and a long day too, given, as David Aiken mentioned, the number of people uh, that may have a question or two for the prime minister. So what can we expect to see? Let's uh, bring Muhammad Ali into the conversation. Muhammad is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, great to have you back on the program on a, a very, very busy day. Thanks, Muhammad. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me, Bill. David Aiken just outlined uh, some of the things that are going to be going on. I, I think there's a lot of disappointment when uh, Justice Minister David Lamenti was uh, testifying a couple of days ago. Uh, because with some of the key questions, he, he invoked the uh, solicitor-client privilege and said, I can't even talk about that. Uh, do you anticipate that there's going to be that sort of an answer for the prime minister, or do you think he may be a little more forthcoming? I think he'll, he'll, have to, he'll probably find the right balance of uh, how much he's going to be forthcoming and how much he'll have to invoke the cabinet confidentiality. Like, I mean, there's, you know, there, there are always difficulties in, in trying to, and in, in the, his team and the legal support that that uh, the prime minister will have in terms of preparing for this i think you know he will need to demonstrate certain like deliver certain answers which i think a number of the cabinet ministers that have uh, come forward in their testimony have have shared and you can expect similar um you know uh, for lack of a better term openness uh to explaining you know his thinking what all went into it all the questions and answers and and there will be certain things that will he'll he'll just truly have to like withhold for the cabinet confidentiality as as an answer. Uh, and I would imagine there'll be some say I was going to say regurgitation, maybe the the kinder word here is reaffirmation of, of some of the testimony people like Mendicino and and, and Christian Freeland just yesterday and and some of the others who've come forward because they were in those same meetings. Uh, but I, I I'm getting the sense from what we're hearing from some of the guys on the other side, the lawyers and and some of the people that are going to have time on this. Uh, is they want to get inside his head. They want to ask the prime minister, why did you think this was the right thing to do? And, and I don't know how, how he can answer that because he's, 
he, you know, the, you're looking at the legal elements of this, and, and we've heard that time and time again, haven't we, Mohammed, during these uh, weeks of uh, of the inquiry? This is the definition. Uh, but you know, do you just go by the definition of that, or is there going to be some flexibility here? We don't really know how the commission is going to look at this, do we? Yeah, I mean, look, I think ultimately the the prime minister will. You know, they, they have multiple calculations that they have to make uh, and considerations and, um, you know, each advisor that is, so the head of CSIS, his national security advisor, his chief of staff, his respective cabinet ministers that are involved in this, like they all will have gotten um, assessments, uh, interpretations, um, and a whole host of considerations when it comes to like national security, economic security, uh, public safety, you know, there, there are all these different components that the prime minister has to weigh uh, before determining. So ultimately, it, you know, his call, and it's, uh, you know, to say that it's true to the word, like, uh, you know, there is some broad elements to what at least I have sort of understood that, you know, economic security was what I think what the deputy prime minister was alluding to saying, well, like, she's getting hounded by calls by uh, the bank CEOs and heads of major corporations that are, are hearing concerns about the risk to the Canadian economy. I mean, that is a national security concern when you're th- talking about the national economy, right? So hence why people like U.S. President Joe Biden were uh, very, very concerned in their calls with the prime minister. So, uh, you know, it, it's what you were going to get, I believe, is an understanding of like some of the components that went into it. He will regurgitate much of what uh, his cabinet ministers and some of the advisors have said, uh, and try to like package together. So to say, look, this is where my head was at because this is the information I had, and this and I had to make uh, a major decision for the safety of the country. Well, and maybe that was best uh, reflected in the testimony from CSIS. Uh, I guess it was the middle of the week uh, where he was asked, and he says no, it doesn't necessarily meet the definition of of what it says in the act. But he still advised the prime minister to do it, and 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 I guess what he's insinuating there is you, you had to be here, you had to hear the horn talking, you had to hear, uh, you know, the the some some of the things that we're saying about F Trudeau and and we want to overthrow the government. Uh, it's it, you know it's easy to sit back here, you know, nine, number of months later, and just especially if you weren't there and say, well, it doesn't meet you know the letter of that act. But uh, I, I'm just wondering just how they're going to interpret that, and and let's cut to the chase here. There's going to be some politics here today. I mean, some of the people that are going to be questioning the prime minister just plain don't like him, uh, don't like uh, government, uh, and, and and they're going to get their couple of minutes in front of him today. Yeah, there will be a bit of the 50 minutes of fame situations that will take place. Just like, I mean, the 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 lawyer that right now was like chasing um, someone claiming to be someone else of a, an executive at a consulting firm, whatever. Like, I mean, there's just like it, sometimes a bit of a farce that the convoy side of lo- lo- the legal team has sort of come out with uh, in questions and have been thrown out because of uh, the way they were misbehaving to the uh, to the, the justice. I, I think, like ultimately, like the the prime minister will. Well, like, and I think this is where it comes back to your point about even the politics of it. Like, the prime minister has like multiple calculations, right? Everyone assumes politics just means like a very crude term, but politics is also you know understanding the different dynamics that uh, that have an impact on on a situation, whether it's from an economic, it's, you know, national security, public safety, and and look like there's there's the convoy side, but there's also you know. Coots in Alberta, there was risks in Saskatchewan at one point, Manitoba, there was the Windsor uh, Ambassador Bridge that was also being 
um, blockaded. Uh, you know, so th- like there was other consideration beside beyond just just the the convoy. And I think to the CISA's uh, head's um, testimony, you know, he was looking at look like there are serious concerns. There is identified foreign funding coming into supporting this. It is also giving. You know, the, when we think about like what, what some of the uh, testimony, but also with the, the public comments before the inquiry started, where uh, the the comments about you know our 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 adversaries or you know around the world like a China or a Russia are looking at this saying, look, this is how I can dis- destabilize a G seven country, uh, and and if we did this in other places, perhaps we can find success in and in attacking democracy and attacking you know g7 countries and such right so like there are different sort of elements that the prime minister is is obviously one of the few privileged people to actually understand and be in these conversations has to think about the the long-term impacts uh that may not happen today may happen tomorrow but will happen could happen a year from now or two years from now where we are considering well like these are the lessons learned by our enemies uh and we need to do better and so we need to end this before it becomes even worse there's another element. I got a minute or two left here. I wanted to get your perspective on this too. Uh, and again, I want to go back to that word perspective. Uh, as this was happening, uh, okay, in February, uh, we were just a little more than a year away from the January 6th uh, insurrection on the Capitol in Washington, of course. And and when you look back on that in hindsight, nobody thought that was going to get violent at all. They just thought, okay, there's a big bunch of rowdy people here that, that like Donald Trump. They're not happy with the results. Well, in other words, they were very disgruntled, just like this crowd that was in Ottawa. That got really ugly real fast, and people died. Now, I'm, I, we don't know that that was going to happen there, but the the authorities didn't know it wasn't going to happen either. So I, I got to figure that's got a way in their heads somewhere along the line when they're making this decision. Most definitely. I mean, I think that what we saw in the January 6th insurrection, uh, I think a lot, a lot of countries are also looking at saying, well, if, the, if this can happen in the U.S., it can surely happen to any of us especially in, the, in those situations and you know they they you know the coots uh, blockade found tons of weapons uh there that you know were potentially at risk and you know the rcp commissioner told the public safety minister that like look there's a serious threat of violence uh and they arrested and they found tons of those weapons i mean we don't like people were being attacked and harassed and threaten uh here in ottawa like there's so uh, the the threat violence and potential for just agitation to just lead to something worse was totally plausible i think that's what we've heard and seen that there was a serious threat to national security there was a threat to the prime minister's safety there's a threat to other elected officials uh and cabinet ministers uh safety that they all had to leave i mean even and we're just talking about federal. There was also local and provincial. Um, you know, there was the local councillors for the area that like had to vacate their entire city uh, because they just were having people coming and threatening their home, that their families, throwing rocks at their house and everything. Like there's this like uh, there was just this uncontrolled situation by the police that no one knew who was going to actually do something about it. Um, and so those are things that definitely were being weighed on by. Prime Minister and his closest advisors. Mohammed, we'll have to uh, wait and see. In just a few minutes from now, about 9.30 this morning is when the Prime Minister is expected to begin uh, his session there, too. Uh, as always, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks for having me.
Muhammad Ali, senior consultant with uh, Crestview Strategies. Well, back in just a second, I want to talk about what else is going on here. And again, that that context, with, I think, which I think is so important here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the program, about a speech that Christia Freeland made. Actually, she made two or three speeches all on the same theme uh, about that's increasing economic activity with our friends, people that have the same sorts of values as we do, not just economically, uh, but in other aspects as well. Uh, and kind of adopted the phrase of friendshoring. Well, Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, uh, has written a book that very, very much talks about the same sort of thing. But is it really the best way to go? Well, there's a great piece in theconversation.com that addresses this. Uh, that's called Canada Should Focus on Building Ties with Countries that Share Its Values, But Tread Carefully. The author is uh, David DiTomasi, who is uh, an associate professor and a dis- distinguished fellow in international business at Queen's University. Professor, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Happy Friday. And to you, too. I, I, I found it to be a very insightful piece. There's an awful lot of conversation about that these days, of course, because of, of the, the attitude of, of Deputy Prime Minister Freeland and others. But I, I get the sense that your message here is, yeah, this is a pretty good idea, but we have to go in there with our eyes wide open. Basically, yes, exactly. Um, I think we kind of lost the, the idea of using values a little bit for a period of time. I outlined that a little bit when I think mm-hmm. we were overly focused on the economic aspects of globalization and hoping that would give us political benefits that they ultimately did not. And I think we, the events over the past six months, and really the events over the past couple of years, have indicated to us that we are in a bit of a geopolitical conflict, and values is one of the places we probably need to be fighting it. Well, you made an interesting point here that uh, I think really drives the point home. Uh, when we were developing these policies, and I guess you could go all the way back to post-World War II, and we were creating trade alliances and other alliances, uh, we tried to play nice with the people that we knew weren't very nice and thinking, you know what, they'll they'll be so overwhelmed with the, you know, the benefits of democracy that they're going to be coming along and they'll be on side, thinking specifically of China and Russia. Uh, that was a misstep, wasn't it? Well, it's miscalculation. I make that argument in the yeah. sense that to have believed that they would ever become versions of us, in the sense of how they did, chose their political leaders and how they ran their economies. Um, and I think you know, warnings have been built for a long period of time that this supposed transition we are hoped to be getting never seemed to really happen. They they seem to become more uh, authoritarian. They be, seem to become more. Um, focused on reaping whatever advantages they could from economic relationships. So I think people have been warning about this, and I think it's finally filtered up. And the other aspect of this, too, is go back to our point about, you know, having our eyes wide open about this. It's not as if we can just put a checklist together and say, okay, these are our values. Uh, If that country has all of these values, check that box, check that box, they're okay. There's got to be some flexibility here, you say. Sure. And, you know, values are a very touchy thing for anybody. And uh, you can see that by defining that our values are X, that somebody else's values are Y, and that inherently ours are better than theirs. Well, you could see how that's not going to always make you a lot of friends. But at the end of the day, there's you have to work with big players, particularly China, who's the second biggest economy in the world. Some say the first by some measures. You have shared interests. And I mentioned a couple of them. You have shared interests in combating climate change, for example. You have shared interests in limiting or stopping the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and the list could go on. So you can't just not work with people upon whom your values may disagree. You can state them, but at the end of the day, there's still real business that needs to be done. Is anybody doing it 
properly? Uh, do you see any signs here that somebody it gets this and they understand what needs to be done going forward here? Well, I think we're seeing a coalition of this. I mean, that was one of the points of me in the article was that I also see this. I work in a business school and I see an enormous sort of trend towards people studying business and putting values into business of ESG investing and purpose-driven corporations. And I, values as part of an integrated strategy uh, that includes statement of what they are, friend shoring on the economic front. I suspect that the war in Ukraine might actually see us pay more attention to national defense than we have in the past couple of decades. Perhaps some reinvestment there is in order. Realizing that the world is a bit more dangerous than we thought it was, and that these sort of activities and these sort of coalescing around these three or four pillars might make a coherent strategy. I think we're edging that direction, that's for sure. How's this going to play out at home? You talk about the impact it's going to have domestically, and uh, and I guess that's probably subject to interpretation from from the populace, the Vox Populi, uh, as to why they're not they're doing it. And we've already heard some of the, the voices about this, like, why are you doing business with China? Uh, human rights violations, you know, why are we at the World Cup right now with all the things that are going on in Qatar these days? Uh, they maybe don't understand or don't much care about that balance that the governments are trying to find. Right. Well, I think you one of the, the thing the value strategy has to remember is there will be costs. I mean, you can't just state them but not do significant things. It might mean, and this happened during the Cold War, people, our athletes didn't go to some Olympics, um, for example. It's a heck of a price for them to pay. There might be times and places where we don't source the cheapest material or we re repatriate some manufacturing. But these things are going to cost Canadian consumers. And before they're willing to pay that price, they have to be an articulation of why they should. And I think you're seeing, you're laying the groundwork for that articulation, particularly from the Deputy Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister hasn't said anything against what she's doing. So you've you got to believe that the two of them are on side on this. Well, let's talk about that that synchronicity there. This is, as you say, the Deputy Prime Minister, but also the Finance Minister. So, you know, she's got her economic hat on, I would imagine, as she's is making these speeches and, and preaching this gospel. Uh, but what about the other portfolios that are going to be involved in this as well? Foreign affairs, things of this nature. Do, 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 do they have to march in the same marching orders? I mean, you don't want to have one message in one portfolio and another message in another, do you? No. In fact, I think I've also seen a bit of signs of some coordination on this. Um, and this has foreign effects and, and domestic effects. Uh, I saw our, our foreign minister, Mr. Lee, talking about working with China along the lines I have just mentioned working where they can and stating values difference when they don't. And I mentioned earlier the defense, finance, um, trade and investment, all of these things working in coalition and with our allies. Uh, we have to remember that, uh, you know, we're a pretty small fish compared to globally. So we're going to need to work with our Western European and, and American allies to get this to work. The final thing that also says there's some electoral politics in Canada being played in here. Um, a lot of those policies I just mentioned have historically been conservative ones. And I think we're seeing a liberal government kind of edging towards that range primarily to secure their hold on power domestically. So there's, there's a lot of irons in the fire here. There's a, a, a great deal of talk these days, uh, globally anyway, about the uh, the Indochina policy uh, that yeah. uh, the United States seems to be moving forward much more aggressively than we are. There's a lot of pressure, we're told, uh, on our foreign affairs minister to, to be in lockstep with that. Uh, is, is our delay here? Or are we dragging our heels intentionally because it's what we do sometimes? Or is there an attempt here to try to, as you say, synchronize this policy with foreign policy? 
Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things going on, right? Uh, right now, the federal government and, and the leaders there are pretty enraptured or, or caught up in, in the hearings, and they have to focus on the convoy issues that they have to deal with right now. Um, it's always a, a delicate dance that Canada has about either working with the Americans without looking like we're following them or not looking like we have an independent place and an independent decision-making capacity. So sometimes delay is a useful way to illustrate that independence, even if you had already kind of decided beforehand this was a similar track you were going to follow. So I think there's some of that involved in terms of when and how we announce things. But at the end of the day, we usually come around uh, to similar views. You mentioned a couple of seconds ago that uh, the Prime Minister has not said anything in, in opposition to what uh, Minister Freeland is saying, nor some of the other folks that are advocating for this too. Uh, but is it necessary for him to to get on side to make that statement that this is our policy, this is the way we're moving now? At some point, I think it is. Um, and he's the one that you know, all the funnels lead to him in terms of we were talking about earlier, the various portfolios in government that have to be coordinated at the end of the day. Um, you know, he is the one who's got to pull that cabinet together and, and say, this is, the, this is the direction we are going. And I expect all of you to kind of, you know, do your part. And um, I would suspect at some point that'll come. I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised it hasn't yet. Maybe he's just been, you know, preoccupied with some other things. But I would imagine that will, that should be something in the offing fairly soon. Yeah, that's one of those big policy speeches that, uh, you know, is supposed to, you know, sec- I, I guess signal a pivot in, in policy. And, well, we're waiting for that. Maybe after today, as I say, when he gets out of the testimony. Uh, I'll direct our listeners it's to theconversation.com. Uh, the piece is called Canada Should Focus on Building Ties with Countries that Share Its Values but Tread Carefully. Uh, Professor, a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. It was a pleasure to be on. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And uh, like I say, give it a good read when you get some time later on. I think it puts a lot of perspective into what we're supposed to be doing on a global basis right now. Because uh, we are trying to step up. That's pretty obvious. And it, some of the comments from the Foreign Affairs Minister and the Prime Minister on that, too. But as uh, Minister Freeland says, it's got to be tied together. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The hockey world, I think everybody was saddened. Uh, earlier this week to learn of the, uh, frankly, sudden passing, I guess, of Toronto Maple Leaf legend Boreas Salming uh, at age 71 uh, from ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, as it's called. Uh, it was not that long ago, of course, that uh, they had a special night for him at the uh, Scotiabank Arena. And uh, uh, we kind of thought that, well, that's great. And uh, please, you know, go home and, and, you know, do what you can. Well, just a couple of days later, of course, he's passed away. And, uh, well, the the tributes from just about all over the place right now are are heartening, I suppose, but it's still a a sad time uh, when you lose somebody of that magnitude uh, to such a horrendous disease. I want to bring Mike Stubbs into the conversation. Mike, of course, is the host of London Live on 980C FPL. Uh, He's also the voice of the London Knights, the play-by-play announcer for the Knights now for the last little while. Uh, Mike, first of all, thanks for jumping in with us today. Uh, This guy is, I I know, you know, platitudes and, and, and... Things like this get tossed around, especially in the sports uh, world, very quickly. Uh, but this, this guy was a legend and 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 an icon and 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 basically a history maker in, in professional hockey, wasn't he? He was, Bill. He really, really was. And we've got to go back and appreciate what he was able to do to open the door for a lot of European players. We now regard the National Hockey League as the league that has the best players in the world. Well, that had to start somewhere. And for a while, there were some incredible players 
all coming from Canada and the United States. And if you were born in Sweden in the 70s, if you were born in Czechoslovakia in the 70s, in the Soviet Union, that's where you played. And Borja Salming was one of the first to come over and really, I think you could argue, the first to come over and have an incredible impact on the game, be a star, show that, hey, this planet, this planet has all kinds of great hockey players. But in order to do that, Borja Salming had to take someone's job, and that's how it was viewed. And yet, he did it with class. He did it where he wasn't someone who, you know, was was forced out in any way, or, you know, did he have to endure a lot on the ice? Absolutely he did. But if you look right now, and if you look even back last year, the year before, all the way back into the 80s, you won't find anybody who says, anything bad about Boris Salming because he was class on and off the ice. Well, uh, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, even those days with the odd time that we'd see international hockey, and it didn't happen very often. This is, you know, be the world championships of the, the Olympics every four years. Uh, and we usually did pretty well, except against the Russians, of course. Uh, but there was a Swede back in the 1960s. I had to do some research on this. His name was Tommy Bergman. He only played, I, I can't remember who he signed with now, uh, but he only played like a season or something like that. And he was, you know, he was there. He was not a star by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that just enhanced the attitude, Mike, that, well, you know what? Those guys aren't as good as us. Uh, you know, the best hockey players are here in North America, uh, and it's always going to be that way. And, of course, we got our eyes opened in 1972 with that Russian series, uh, which is actually, as, as as you know historically, kind of what opened the door for the, for the Leafs to scout Borja Salming because – you remember after they played the games here in Canada and there was a layover of a few days, uh, they played some exhibition games in Sweden. And uh, Jerry McNamara and Jim Gregory from the Leafs were over there scouting. Uh, they I forget the name of the guy they were looking for because he's a, a, a trivia question right now. But they saw this Borja Salmon guy playing and they said, whoa, wait a second here. Stop this. Presses. And, and they signed him and Inga Hammerstrom. And, and, you know, the old cliche, the rest is history. It is, and there is no coincidence there because it was that year he was playing in Brinus in Sweden and ended up coming over in 73-74 to play a 76-game season for the Toronto Maple Leafs and immediately had an impact. And we're looking at some years that turned pretty lean for the Toronto Maple Leafs. There wasn't a lot of winning being done. They would make the playoffs, but they wouldn't go very far in the playoffs typically. And Borea Salming was there through that and really started to anchor that blue line and then would play in all international competitions for Sweden. But you had to prove, and you hinted at it, Bill, you had to prove that you could play this style. And we still have maybe this stereotype that players playing in Europe on bigger ice surfaces cannot get into the hard nose go into the gray areas, do what you have to do to score, and yet so many of them do. But Borja Salming was the first player that was tested in that way. All right, can you take it? Can you hack it here? And he did. Yeah, and, and as uh, Jim Gregory mentioned later on, of course, the great uh, general manager for the Leafs and Scout, said, you know, when we decided, hey, some of these guys can play, they said, well, you, couldn't get, you can't get the Russians or the Czechs because they're still behind the Iron Curtain. So they, they had to look at Scandinavia. Uh, you know, for hockey players. And and that's why they started looking at guys like Boris Salming. But you mentioned something, Mike, and, and you know what? we got to talk about the, the you know, ugly underbelly of professional sports. Uh, you know, it's great to talk about his accomplishments because they are many and, and, and well worth the conversation. 
but there's a there's a brotherhood in professional sports, in men's sports, I'm sure in women's sports too. And if that group doesn't think you belong, they're going to make your life a living hell. And and they did that to Boris Salming and Inga Hammerstrom. Hammerstrom didn't react, react too well to it. Uh, Salming stood up to it. Uh, and not he wasn't vociferous about it. He just took it and he gave it right back as soon as people gave him. I think the first thing people thought about him was, A, he's an incredible talent. And B, he's tough. I thought Swedes weren't supposed to be tough. This guy was a tough hockey player. And it was almost, Bill, like he got tougher as things went along in those days yeah you could slash if you were a defenseman in front of the ice in front of the net this is going to sound strange but one of the first things you were taught to do was hack somebody's ankles or where to cross check them in the small of the back where there wasn't any padding that was just the way the game was played and now that sounds a little different but that was it and if you look at Boreas Salming here's a guy that as much as we think about his skill because he had an awful lot of it when 1980 came, he'd been in the league about six years in the National Hockey League, and he put up 154 penalty minutes. And the next year, he had 170. So you're right. He would take it. He would give it back. And that was in a transition period where, again, not every player, but some players were not happy about having any kind of European influence. Peter Stastny would come over around you know, that time, late 70s, early 80s, And as a forward, he would take off his equipment at the end of the game, and the arm that he would use, he'd have one hand on his stick as he kind of, you know, carried the puck and cradled the puck and protected the puck, and the other arm was kind of extended, and he would get whacked so much, one of his arms was purple, and the other one was not. And that was just the way that things went, where other players maybe didn't get quite that treatment. So that's the barrier that Boreas Salming broke through, and that's something that can make you a little bitter after a while. But it didn't. And well, and exactly. I mean, you know, and we talk about you know the color barrier and Jackie Robinson uh, and and Willie O'Ree, of course, in the hockey. And and you know we thought that's blatant racism. That's terrible. But you're right. The mindset in in a lot of players' minds was you're taking a job away from a Canadian. I, you know, I don't want you over here. And he and not, he had to put up with that, and he fought back on that. Uh, I think it was Harry Neal, the great hockey coach Harry Neal, uh, who said uh, every player from Sweden and for Europe, that matter. Uh, should send a piece of their, their paycheck to Boris Salming uh, because he blazed the trail. If he had if he had failed, Mike, I don't know if that if that that exodus of, of players from Europe and, and Scandinavia would have happened. At least not as quickly as it did. Anyway, no, it would have been a really slow trickle, but it wasn't. And scouts scouts probably want to thank Boris Salming too because he created a lot more jobs for people going over and trying to find <laughs> yeah. players in Europe. Because hey, if there's a Boris Salming here. I wonder how many Boreas Salmings are still there, and they went and found a whole lot of them. Well, and you know, there's a well, there's I think four or five Swedes on the kind of the currently roster, but look at how many there are in the league right now, uh, and 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 you know, and that's tough. I mean, for anybody, that, you know, that that blazes that trail and has to put up with the the biases against them, uh, you know, it's. <laughs> It's, it's like, and we've heard so many of this, uh, the variations on this theme, I guess, Mike, in other parts of society, too. He had to be almost twice as good as everybody else to prove that he belonged. Oh, sure. Uh, even coming into that first training camp, or even in the second training camp, you had to not just beat out somebody to get a spot, you had to be head and shoulders above them to get that spot. So he came in and, and he proved that toughness. I think we can all remember him taking a skate to the face and all the stitches that he had. But you look back at last weekend, 
when he was in Toronto for two days, and he was there, I guess, two weekends ago, he was in Toronto, he was there for the Hall of Fame ceremony, and then he was there for a night on his own, and the number of people who made sure that they were able to just go and, and say something to him, the status that he has in Toronto, I don't think can be measured very well. We always talk about the all-time Leafs, and Wendell Clark will get mentioned, of course, and Matt Sundin will get mentioned, of course. And I think Borea Salming's name, maybe because he wasn't scoring 50 goals, I think sometimes it gets ushered down the list a little lower than it should be. Yeah, well, because you look at stats like that, and and, uh, and it was a different kind of hockey, as you say. I, I still remember it one year uh, that uh, they were playing the Philadelphia Flyers in the playoffs, and uh, they went after him. These were the big, bad you know, Flyers, the Broad Street Bullies, uh, and it got so bad in that series, if you recall, Mike. Uh, Toronto police were actually laying charges against a couple of the Flyers for assault on the ice. Uh, it, it was that brutal, and and Salming, you know, he he took it and gave it right back. It was fascinating to watch, and I'm glad you brought up uh, the night of November the 11th at at, uh, at the Scotiabank Center. I don't care if you're a hockey fan or not. That was probably one of the most emotional experiences. Anybody who watched that, if you were in the arena, of course, you probably didn't have a dry eye, or nor nor did you if you were watching it on TV. The 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 love and the appreciation uh, that was shown, not just by the fans, but as you may recall. Uh, you know, Daryl Sittler and, and Lanny McDonald, two of his old teammates, uh, helped him out in the S because he can't, you know, he's still in a wheelchair. Uh, and Daryl actually had to lift his arm up for him to wave to the crowd because he didn't have that control, that that muscular control anymore. Uh, just steeped with emotion and just it just tears your heart out to know that, that there was that much love. And, and two weeks later, sadly, he's passed away. And what it took for him to take that trip. We've all got to remember that, too, at 71 years of age. And in the midst of what ALS can do for you or good, can do to you, and, and he was still able to and, and wanted to make that trip. And no, it, it was, it's emotional thinking about it right now. It really is. And Boreas Alming is someone who certainly is remembered for only good things. And I don't know how many people can come through their life and only be remembered for good things. He's one of them. Well, exactly, and and we'll talk about his advocacy for uh, for ALS as well in just a couple of minutes. Mike, I know you got to get back to work. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Mike Stubbs, uh, host of London Live, of course, on CFPL and uh, play-by-play voice of the London Knights. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.